I'd like for you to turn, if you have your Bible, to Luke 19, 1 through 10. Luke 19, 1 through 10 is where we're going to be today. Uh, and, and as you do, I'd, uh, I'd, like to, I'd like you to think about a time uh, that you had uh, your career advancement or your enjoyment or your life safety even dependent wholly on somebody that you didn't even know getting you from point A to point B. Can you think of that? Think of somebody who got you from point A to point B. You had no idea who they, who they were, and you had to trust them to get you there. All right? Uh, so again, Luke, Luke 19 is where we're going to be. Um, and, and, and as I think about that for myself, what comes to mind is the time that Tess and I went to Costa Rica for our honeymoon. Man, I was prepared. I was ready for that trip. I had uh, done just so much research on the place we'd be going to. I spoke Spanish fluently from years and years in school. Um, man, I booked everything in advance, months and months in advance. I was, I was ready. Before the trip, I was pre- as prepared as I could possibly be. But for our success for this trip, it hinged on one thing. For us to get from the, the, the hotel we were staying at in San Jose, which is the capital of Costa Rica, to our resort, I had to depend on this guy that I didn't know getting in a bus that I didn't know what it looked like, picking us up and taking us to a place I had never been before. And let me tell you, this scared the mess out of me. I mean, there were so many thoughts that were running through my head. How would I know if the driver knew it was really me? What if I stepped into some unmarked bus and was suddenly on the nightly news? What if there was somebody who was some imposter Jacob and Tess and got in this van and they were off having the time of their life on my honeymoon that I paid for and I'm just sitting here in, in San Jose. What on earth? What am I to do? This is the, the thought process of a uh, man who's in the middle of a panic attack in a country that he's never been to. Um, and so, you know, I, I find myself having to, to think, you know, thank this man more and more who picked us up uh, for getting us from, from point A to point B. I had to trust him completely, completely. Didn't know who he was, but he got us safely from point A to point B. So again, can you think of a time similar to this when your career advancement or enjoyment or even your life safety depended wholly on trusting someone that you didn't even know meeting you right where you were? Was it an Uber driver that maybe found you and got you from point A to point B uh, in, in treacherous weather? Was it a tutor or a college professor in a weed-out course that actually took time for you to learn the material? Maybe you depended on some paramedics quickly getting you from point A to point B, from where you were to a hospital, and that saved your life. What would you have done in this situation without somebody that you didn't know intervening and saving you? Well, in Luke 19, we see a similar story, though, you know, believe it or not, it has far greater implications. We meet a man named Zacchaeus. He's a sinful man whose whole eternity was set on the right course because his Savior Jesus met him right where he was. We'll meet a crowd in this passage who obeys their pharisaical religion by telling the sinner to take a hike, to find his own way to God, which, honestly, is quite literally impossible. And we'll see in Luke 19, uh, Jesus say to Zacchaeus, to the crowd, and even to us, that it's his mission to seek and save the lost. So today, I want you to clearly hear and obey God's invitation to join Jesus in his mission to seek and save the lost. Are you ready for this mission, church? 
you're either in or you're out. And so today's big idea up on the screen is this religion leaves sinner searching. Religion leaves sinner searching. But Jesus seeks and saves the lost. And so let's pray, friends. Jesus, I, I pray that you would use your church, Lord, as you're seeking agents to find and help you save the lost. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to hearts that are far from God and tell them that they're not too far from Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you'd use me, a broken man, to deliver your message today. Lord, I pray that you would be with Daniel as he's in uh, North Carolina today. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just give him the tools and the effectiveness that he needs uh, to pastor well here at Catalyst. Um, Lord, and, and we pray for Center Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, Lord. Um, Charlottesville, where three UVA students uh, were, were killed this weekend, Lord. I pray that you would use Center Church, use Pastor Josh Miller, use the elders, use the members of, of Center Church, Lord, to minister to a broken-hearted people. Lord, help them to point clear to, clearly to the gospel. Let the lost be found in Charlottesville, even among tragedy, Lord. Lord, speak to us today. We thank you and we love you. In your name, amen. So again, Luke 19, 1 through 10, says this. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in the, into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now first off, it's not lost on me that Daniel just so happened to give me maybe the one passage in the entire Bible about a man who has re renowned shortness. Like, what is that about? <laughs> That's either a coincidence, it's, it's not a coincidence, or Daniel's lying about saying it was, it was a coincidence, which I don't believe to be true, or what I think is, is really happening here is God has a real sense of humor. He really does. Uh, and he, he, go, he went ahead and gave me this Zacchaeus uh, sermon. So, you know, bring on the short jokes because I can take them. I have taken them my whole life. I can take them. I'll, I'll, I'll laugh at myself. Don't worry. Don't worry. All right. So to set the scene, verse 1 says that he, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. Now Jesus had started on a long but direct route from his homeland of Galilee to Jerusalem. But in Luke 9, as Jesus and his disciples began to pass through Samaria, the Samaritans, and I wouldn't call these good Samaritans, they said, no, you're not welcome here. Go the long way. 
So that long way would add an extra 11-ish hours to their already 38-hour trip by foot, according to Google Maps. And I'm just imagining Jesus is using Google Maps, right? Right? Like, like he's got his phone. Man, th- no, no, that's not the right way. Re- recalculating, recalculating. Yep, yep. And al- along the way, just east of Jerusalem, is the city of Jericho. And Jericho was a major crossroads, and thus, it was a major toll plaza. And if, if, you're, if you're thinking of scale, think of it this way. Jericho is Newport News, and let's say Jerusalem is Norfolk. So, of course, people are passing through, passing through Jericho to get to, to Jerusalem. And this made tax collectors very happy. If you're a tax collector in Jericho in 33 BC, how are you likely funding your next Ferrari or your next summer home or what have you? It's probably by scamming tourists out of their minds with made-up taxes, made-up toll taxes, way more than even the locals are being charged. If there's anything we've learned about tax collectors lately, it's that they're what? The likeliest Christians, right? But before that, they're the scum of the earth. These are the kinds of guys that would charge a little extra money and pocket the rest for themselves. And by a little, I mean a whole lot. And by the scum of the earth, I mean the kind of guys that would sell out their own nation for the profit, for their own profit on behalf of the invading Romans. Opportunistic in the worst sense of the word. And this chief tax collector is Zacchaeus. This is, he's the real mob boss. He's the real Tony Soprano. He's a real embodiment of scandal and sliminess. And add that, uh, add to the fact that Zacchaeus' name means, you guessed it, the righteous one. This is like a woman named Grace who's always super petty and asking for the manager. It's, it's like somebody who's, whose name is Arnold, but he can't even bench press a, a, an empty barbell. You know, this Zacchaeus, right, he's supposed to be righteous. He's anything but. But at least he's rich, right? He could probably buy anything he wanted. Pleasure, power, whatever. But in Luke 19, we really see a shell of a man. He's clearly discontent by his riches because whether he realizes it or not, he's searching for something. Something, who, something who, that can really make him whole. Which brings us to the first point. It's this. Everyone is searching for something. Everyone is searching for something. Think about it yourself. What are you searching for? Everybody is searching for something. So let's read Luke 19, 1 through 4 again. It says this, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And so right here in verse 3, we see that Zacchaeus is is searching for something. It says he's seeking to see who Jesus was. He wants to know what all the buzz is about. Zacchaeus had likely heard of this miracle worker Jesus already. News was always coming into Jericho because of its geography and its influence. So no doubt that Zacchaeus would have heard of Jesus by now. He would have heard of his miraculous exploits and his unorthodox teachings. 
It had gone all around Jericho that Jesus had just raised a man from the dead. It was this man named Lazarus, just a couple of towns over. And Zacchaeus, even now, could probably hear the ruckus cheering uh, of a crowd outside the city gates from Jesus just having healed a blind beggar. Zacchaeus' head is probably spinning at the prospect that Jesus is on his way through Jericho. It's his chance to meet Jesus. He's got this unshakable feeling, though, that Jesus might be just what he's looking for. So what does he do? He logs off of Facebook, and he heads outside to track him down. But this crowd, no one will let him see Jesus. I can imagine he's trying to push and shove his way through the, the crowd and, and, and maybe use his height to his advantage and, and limbo under some legs to, to try to get to Jesus, right? But no one will let him through. I mean, he's just a sinful little tax collector anyways. Why would a guy like Jesus ever want to get to him? Imagine, if you will, that your favorite band or celebrity figure came to town right down your street, and you had a chance to meet him. Wouldn't you risk maybe a couple of traffic violations uh, just to get there, right? You want to get there as soon as possible. You know, for me, growing up an aspiring rock star, I always wanted to get on stage with the Foo Fighters, right? <laughs> and play a song with them. I still do. If, it were the, if, it, if I were at a Foo Fighters concert and I had a chance to hop on stage and play with Dave Grohl, I might risk an elbow or two to the face to make my way to the, to the stage. I really would. But if I'm Zacchaeus in this crowd, the crowd is doing anything it can to keep me away. It's, it's saying things like, hey, you had to be a Nirvana fan in the 90s to even love Dave Grohl. It's saying things like, hey, you can't even play Everlong all the way through. Don't even try it, man. But what on earth does Zacchaeus do here in verse 4? Well, much to the shame of us in the vertically challenged community, he, does, he breaks rule number one of looking at you, Brian. <laughs> he breaks rule number one of the short club. He gets on something to make himself taller. He gets on something to make himself taller. He's me at the grocery store trying to climb the shelves to grab something out of reach. Man, as a brother in Christ and a brother in height, Man's the case, I see you. And I feel your pain, man. I feel it. But unlike me at Kroger, Zacchaeus feels no shame in getting up in this tree. Why? Because he's a man with nothing to lose. He's a sinful man searching for something. He's looking for a way out of a lifestyle of greed and extortion that has him bound for hell, whether he knows it or not. And what's more, He's a man on the outskirts of society. He's been pushed away and silenced by the majority community his whole adult life for just being a tax collector. This isolation and segregation from society has him as what we would call poor in spirit. He's got lots and lots of dirty money to spend on things that could try to make him happy, but nobody to love him. So, he, so nothing that he could possibly buy would make him happy. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you've been so isolated by the sin that you're in that you're just about to give up searching. And maybe you, you feel like I'm just too many clicks away on the internet from grace. Maybe it's, it's all the lying that's made it to where nobody can trust you and you can't trust anybody else. Maybe it's arrogant pride or anger. Whatever it is that's got you pushing people away 
and people are now pushing you away. Maybe it's your family or maybe it's society or maybe it's somebody in the church who's pushed you down in a way based on something that you may or may not have any control over and you're looking for something better. Again, everybody is searching for something. So what are you searching for? Are you still looking for the next high, whether that's a lustful image on the internet or an illegal substance or whatever? Are you looking for satisfaction at the bottom of an empty bottle? Are you looking for satisfaction in that next promotion, in the next zero in your salary? What is it you're looking for? Is it sex? Is it power, fame, prestige, honor? What is it? Maybe you've tried it all, but to no avail, and you've got nothing to lose at this point. Know this, though. There is so much more to this story. Zacchaeus had nothing to lose. So what does he do? He breaks rule number one of the short club, and he climbs up into that tree, and he lies in wait until Jesus comes by, which brings us to our second point, and it's this. We only find what we're looking for when we're found by Jesus. And ask yourself, am I found by Jesus? Am I, am I found by Jesus? What does that even mean? Am I found by Jesus? Let's read 19, 5, uh, five through 6, which says this. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And I gotta admit, I'm, I'm genuinely surprised by Jesus' reaction to, to seeing a grown man in a tree. <laughs> like, you look up, what's your first reaction? For Jesus, it's, it's, not, it's not anger. He's not like the, the rest of the crowd. He's not angry. He's not surprised. Zacchaeus isn't in trouble. He doesn't even laugh. Instead, Jesus responds in a way that shows he's not caught off guard at all. How does Jesus respond here? It says, Zacchaeus, hurry down. I need to stay at your place tonight. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, man, Zacchaeus, I was looking for you. I've got a favor to ask of you. Every word that Jesus is saying here is layer upon layer of rich, overwhelming gospel truth. Let's read that again. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked at him and said, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus had never even met the guy before. How on earth would he know his name? I mean, you might as well shout out my, my social security number and my, my credit card, right? Like, what on earth? Zacchaeus didn't know Jesus, but Jesus knew Zacchaeus intimately. Jesus knew Zacchaeus in every single sin he had committed from years ago to today. Him shouting his name at Zacchaeus told Zacchaeus everything he needed to know. But what does he say next? He says this, Hurry down, for I must stay at your house today. You see, the crowd was trying to push Zacchaeus away from Jesus. But Jesus is now specifically calling Zacchaeus out and telling him to come closer. You see, for a rabbi in the day, to be even in the presence of a tax collector, that would have been perceived as scandalous, treasonous even. But not only was Jesus requesting Zacchaeus' presence, he was asking him to open his home, to rest his head, and to have a meal. This strikes 
this strikes me to the core with conviction. I mean, if I were in Jesus' shoes, I'd be perfectly content to checking into the residence inn and, and having a meal out with my 12 homies, uh, avoiding this tax collector. Like, why would I want to be with a tax collector? But this is just what Jesus does. He models the people that we're to pursue. So ask yourself, who am I valuing spending my time with? Am I pursuing the people that Jesus pursues? Who is it that I am valuing spending my time with? Would the Pharisees call me the same thing that they would call Jesus? A friend of sinners? And in verse 6, we get Zacchaeus' response. It's this. He hurried down and received him joyfully. You see, in one sentence, Jesus went from this mystery celebrity to so, so much more to Zacchaeus. This Jesus, he knows my name and my sin, and yet of all places, he wants to come to my house. He could have responded with skepticism that this Jesus, even if he was an all-knowing God-man, that he and his 12 guys would come and ambush me in my house. Like, I've got no reason to trust him because I haven't trusted anybody else. Why would I trust this guy? But instead, we see the power of the Holy Spirit at work here. He sees Jesus, and he knows that he can trust him, not only because he has it together outwardly, but the Holy Spirit is telling him to, right? As Kenny preached a couple of months ago, as Kenny preached a couple of months ago, we learned that the Holy Spirit serves as a spotlight on Jesus. In this case, had it not been for the Holy Spirit speaking to Zacchaeus, Jesus could have been just another face in the crowd, right? But instead, the Holy Spirit is pointing to Jesus, the Savior King, and he's shaking Zacchaeus' shoulder, and he's telling him, that's the guy, that's him, that's King Jesus, that's the guy you were looking for. So in direct obedience to his King Jesus, he comes right on down in a heartbeat. He obeys the command of his king from the moment that his eyes were truly open to who that king even was. So whether you've called yourself a Christian for the past five hours or the past five decades or not at all, ask yourself, who is it that is worthy of rule and reign over my life? Is it me? Is it me, sinful me? Or is it Jesus? Has the Holy Spirit made me see who Jesus truly is? And am I being obedient to the king's authority? And it says that Zacchaeus received him joyfully. You see, Jesus isn't just some lofty king. No, he is an intimate friend. He's a dear friend. For Jesus to stay the night at his place meant that he fully relied on Zacchaeus' hospitality. That he'd have a bed to sleep in, maybe a hot meal or two before he had to leave. And sadly, I can, I can only think of a few people that I've known for a long time that I'd fully trust to stay the night at my house. But here's Zacchaeus. He's taking the leap, showing hospitality to Jesus who's known him from birth and who's willing to stay the night at his place if he'll let him in, which is the Holy Spirit at work. And Zacchaeus lets him in because he trusts Jesus as a close friend. And now we can read Verses 5 and 6, and we see Jesus' request to stay at Zacchaeus' house as a friend, asking a friend for a favor. Jesus looks up at Zacchaeus 
as if he were looking for him all along, right? To a non-believer or a casual observer of this passage up to this point, it would appear to be pure happenstance that Jesus, who just so happened to be on his way through Samaria, had to, had to can't, couldn't go through Samaria. He had to go through Jericho. Just so happened because of some, some Samaritans happened to pass by Zacchaeus who happened to be looking for him. It's a lot of happened to be, right? Jericho was supposed to just happen to be this waypoint for Jesus. But what we see is two things. One, Jesus is intentional in everything that he does. And two, Jesus is always seeking the lost. As theologian John MacArthur said, from the fall of man in the garden, God has continued, seeking to, uh, has continued seeking for lost and hidden sinners. It began in the garden, and it still goes on. Do you want to know why you happen to be here today? It's not because you happen to be going to seeing you. It's not because you happen to hear about Catalyst Church. It's not because you happen to be stationed where, wherever you are here. No, it's because Jesus is seeking after you. So ask yourself, have I been found by Jesus? Zacchaeus found, or rather who, he was looking for. Not in his material wealth, not in his professional status, not in anything else but the one true king of his life. And he found it because Jesus found him first. And friends, he's just what you're looking for. As, John, as, as 1 John, 1 John 4 says, we love him because he first loved us. You can find him because he's found you. You can find him because he's found you. And so that leads us to our third and final point, is this. Jesus radically changes those who he finds. So let's le- read Luke nineteen seven through 10 one more time. It says this. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is, the, since he is also the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So in verse 7, we see a lot of people who think of themselves as far more righteous and far more deserving to play host to Jesus than Zacchaeus. Because, you know, at least I'm not this sinful tax collector, right? They mutter aloud perhaps what many of us would think of Zacchaeus on first inspection. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Man, can, can you think of somebody who has absolutely no filter? The kind of brutally honest people who just have to say what's on their mind. It doesn't matter uh, whether you work or live or study with them. You'll find the type anywhere, maybe even here. You know, don't, don't look around the room. You know it's you. The type that start everything they say with, I'm just going to speak the truth. And the crowd here, they are speaking the truth. Zacchaeus is a sinner. He's been a sinner his whole life. 
perhaps even what the Apostle Paul would call himself, the chief of sinners. But if there's one difference between Zacchaeus and the crowd, it's this. Zacchaeus actually sees his own sin. If, if you weren't here last week and you happen to miss the sermon, go back and listen to it on our website. But here's the Cliff Notes version. The prideful Pharisee uh, in the parable puffed his chest out before God saying, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. But the tax collector, someone who Zacchaeus can relate to, beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The issue here is that the crowd sees Zacchaeus' sin as far greater than their own and that he's therefore unworthy to sit around the table of grace. And they're right. Zacchaeus is unworthy, but so is the crowd. Romans 3 says this, no one is righteous. No, not one. And it says this, that one man's single sin put eternal enmity between us and God. He's so holy. He's so pure that not one molecule of sin can be in his holy presence. That's why hell exists, a place absence of God's righteous presence where the unworthy is sent. We're in that same boat as the case in the crowd. We too are a sinful people who deserve a righteous punishment for our sin. What the crowd says about Zacchaeus says far more about their own hearts than Zacchaeus' heart. It says that they are self-righteous Pharisees who are more concerned about religion than the grace of Jesus Christ. And that might be you. You might be one of the crowd today. I know I have been guilty. Realize this, prideful hypocrisy is a sin. So when we think, even think these very things, we have to repent. And we have to confess the sin that we know we're guilty of. What's more, in verse 8, Zacchaeus goes on to further juxtapose his own heart's posture from the crowds. He says this, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restart fourfold. Wow. Wow. First of all, I don't know about you, but I am blown away by Zacchaeus here. That is a big, bold proclamation. So let's take it apart bit by bit. First of all, he says, Behold, Lord. If there were any doubt up to this point as to whether Zacchaeus acknowledges Jesus as his Savior and King, it should be erased the very instant he called Jesus Lord. Zacchaeus here seemingly ignores the shade that the crowd throws at him. And I don't think it's, it's nearly so much that he ignores the shade, but that he's just completely awestruck by this Savior King of his life right in front of him. So ask yourself this, is Jesus my Lord? Is Jesus so big that everything else is crowded out? Next, we see that Zacchaeus says this, the half of my goods I give to the poor. By this, Zacchaeus means half of everything he owns. We compare this to the rich ruler in Luke 18, which is just the chapter before where Jesus asks how, or where, where a, a rich ruler asks Jesus how to get to heaven. Jesus says, okay, you've, you've obeyed my commandments? Cool. Then sell everything you have and sell it 
sell it to the poor and come and follow me. And what's this rich ruler's response? It's sadness. It's mourning. And we compare this to Zacchaeus, who when prompted, barely prompted at that, he jumps right out of the tree and, Jesus, and, and brings Jesus into his home. And now, basically unprompted, he's giving half of his goods to the poor and restoring fourfold anything that he might have defrauded somebody of. What's his posture? It's joyful. It's exuberant. Jesus simply asks Zacchaeus if he can spend the night, and yet he jumps straight to redistributing his wealth to the poor. And that's not all. Zacchaeus goes on to say, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. The most Zacchaeus would have owed under the Mosaic law is, by the most generous estimations, double. He would have had to pay it back and then pay it back again. Zacchaeus here says, man, if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I give it back fourfold. He says, no, forget that. I'll pay more than double. I'll pay double times double. He might as well have said, here's my credit card, right? His generosity goes far beyond what even the law requires. This, friends, again, is a work of the Holy Spirit. This is what giving with a glad and generous heart looks like. Zacchaeus isn't merely checking off a box to get a good deed into heaven. No. Zacchaeus is giving himself fully to Jesus. He realizes that the weight of his worldly possessions here hold him back. And so he leaves them at the feet of Jesus in surrender. This surrender goes far more than paying back his debt. It's to the point that it hurts for the betterment of others, for the glory of Jesus. What Zacchaeus originally intended for evil, Jesus intended for good. Wow. Can you say the same? Can you say that I give abundantly out of a heart of thanksgiving for what Jesus has done for me to get to me, a sinner? And where the crowd is calling Jesus a sinner, Jesus is now, or where, where, where the crowd is calling Zacchaeus a sinner, Jesus is calling Zacchaeus a friend. But more than that, he calls him a brother. I can just imagine Jesus absolutely beaming at Zacchaeus as he says in verse 9, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. What, is, what does it mean when Jesus calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham? It, it, it means he's calling him a brother. Ephesians 1 says that in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Jesus comes to seek and save his lost long brothers and sisters. His long lost brothers and sisters. He is the true and better older brother of the prodigal son. We learned about this prodigal son, what, last, last week, a couple weeks ago? Can't remember. But th- this, this prodigal son isn't just the only main character of the story. No, it's, it's the older brother who f- forsakes his brother. But no, we see Jesus, who is the true and better brother of the prodigal son. So Jesus proclaims salvation over his brother, who he's brought back into the fold. 
He says today, meaning from here on out, he's my brother, and the power of sin and darkness have no hold on him. And why is this so? Because we read verse 10, which says this, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Again, we read Romans 3, which says that in our sinful blindness, we lack, we alone lack the capacity to grasp the truth of the love and mercy of God. And we stumble towards hell because of it. Jesus, the Son of Man, seeks. We are found. Jesus saves. That's the only way. Jesus is the medic on the battlefield who finds us lying dead, but deems us worthy to live. So he suffers a hail of bullets to retrieve us with his dying breaths, revives us, and treats our wounds. It's his mission to die on the cross, a death which we so greatly deserve, so that we could have eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, that for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He died, was buried, and three days later rose from the grave to prove that you and I, mere sinners, could be clothed with Jesus' righteousness before a holy God. This is the scandalous gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that it's true? And do you believe that it matters? And now, Luke 9 tells us that when we let Jesus in, he saves us. And when he saves us, our desires radically change to conform to his. We, we sang earlier, change my heart, Lord, or take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And when, when that happens, our desires should change and, and, and be conformed to his. Man, today's dominant media message is this. It's, it's listen to your heart, right? It's shoot your shot. It's follow your path. It's believe in yourself. Believe what you want to believe. Man, I've tried that so many times and have come up short. I've pursued what I thought would satisfy me outside of Christ, and I've come up empty every single time. But there's one ages-old message that remains tried and true. It's, it's this. It's deny yourself. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Repent and believe in the gospel. Trust and follow Jesus. That is the message we ought to live by. And it's hard to live out. It really is. It's messy and the world will hate you for it. It really will. But it's the true and better way. It, it offers eternal blessing of eternal love from an all-powerful God and an eternal union with a beloved people that the gates of hell will not stand against. You're looking for something. Look for Jesus. So what are we supposed to do with a text like this? It's this. If you call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, you hear this passage as God's call to join Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost. Join the mission and respond to this call with a joyful, behold, Lord, all I have is yours. There's no more effective way to go and make disciples of all nations than by treating lost sinners as Jesus treats lost sinners. It's this, as brothers and sisters that are within arm's reach of Jesus Christ. We do this by inviting the poor of spirit 
around our Thanksgiving table to a loving gospel conversation. We do this by inviting the marginalized of all kinds to partake in the same Christ-given grace that we're given, removing as many barriers to Jesus as possible by accommodating them as much as possible. This isn't Marxism. This isn't socialism. This isn't being woke. No. This is true. Acts 2 Christianity. This is loving your neighbor as yourself, which can only truly, holistically, sustainably be performed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it on your own. You need the Holy Spirit to do this. We make disciples of all nations by treating sinners of all nations, not with contempt, but with love and dignity as brothers and sisters in need of grace. Why? Because Jesus did the same for us on the cross. We obey Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost by extending that same grace to the lost. By extending that, by extending that same mercy and kinship that Jesus extended to us to the lost. It, you might be here today saying, Jacob, that's, that's great. But really? Really? I'm, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through. Jesus might have come to seek and save the lost, but there's no way he'll find me where I am. Or you might still be running as fast as you can away from God saying, thanks, I'll look elsewhere. I assure you, though, there's only temporal satisfaction in in the job that you idolize, in the status that you idolize, in the money or power that you pursue, in the human bodies that you idolize, or even the person in the mirror that you so highly prize. I've been there. It doesn't satisfy. What you're looking for, you can't find on your own because it's this. It's love and grace. It's everlasting love and an abounding, abiding grace from an all-powerful God. The kind of love and grace that is freely given to those who accept it. At the end of the day, anything else that you're running, running to is a cheap imitation. It really is. It's a cheap imitation of the grace and the mercy that you can receive from Jesus Christ. So stop running. Turn to Jesus. He died for your sake so that you might receive his perfection and righteousness if you just accept it and turn from your sin. Stop running from Jesus. See that he's been chasing you down all along. Repent. Give your sinful life to him and I promise he will clothe you with his righteousness. All for free. No matter who you are, how close or far you feel from the Lord, there's one thing that I ask that you remember that I've said today. It's this. Religion leaves sinners searching, but Jesus seeks and saves the lost. Religion leaves sinners searching, but Jesus seeks and saves the lost. Will you join him? So let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the good news of the gospel that Jesus died, was buried, and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures. We thank you for seeking us and saving us while we were still sinners. For those of us that are still far from you today, Lord, help them to to realize, open their eyes, show them that you're still standing right there by them, clear as day, offering grace 
and mercy in exchange for their sinful ways, Lord God. And for us, the, the church, Lord, help us to repent of hypocrisy and pride. Lord God, we are justified sinners only by your grace. By your grace alone, Lord, we're saved. Help us to take the gospel to the nations in light of what you do for us. Lord, we thank you and we love you. In your name, amen.